what would it take for you to realise that you are enough? Maybe it'll be after your first Olympic Games. Maybe your third. I'm Ali Hill and welcome to Stand Out Live, a podcast dedicated to exploring what does it take to live boldly amongst the busyness, the uncertainty and the pressure of our world. Jana Pittman has represented her country at three Olympic Games and her story is a roller coaster of triumph, defeat, failure and success. She's a two-time world champion, four-time Commonwealth Games champion in athletics and she swapped the track for the ice joining the Australian women's bobsled team to become the first woman to represent Australia in both the Summer and the Winter Olympic Games, which is just extraordinary. After sport, Jana again shifted focus and qualified as a medical doctor. She's a wife and a mother to six beautiful children. She's conquered many hurdles in life, including being the final woman standing in the recent celebrity television show, SAS Australia. Her resilience and passion for life and putting herself in the way of challenges in the unknown is effervescence. Yana has just released her book called Enough, where she shares her life, the good, the bad and the ugly, her stories of sports, medicine, divorce, miscarriage, loss, solo parenting and media shenanigans are told without any embellishment or excuses. In this conversation, Yana was real and raw. We dived into some of Yana's perspective on failure and why she believes all of us ought to put ourselves in the way of failure more often. We talk about the chase for success versus that ability just to stop and accept the way that things are at the moment and how this tug of war has played out for her. And why, despite her resume of achievements, Yana is still unsure whether she'll be able to achieve her next goal. This is a conversation for us all. Soak up the stories and the real talk with the insightful Yana Pittman. Yana, welcome. It's such a delight to chat with you. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Look, there's so much that you have done, uh, so much that you have achieved, and You've previously said the phrase, I just love challenges. Talk to me a little bit about your kind of background in growing up. Where did that focus or energy determination come from? That's a hard question because I think a lot of it is innate. I think we are born with certain desires and abilities to chase success in some ways. But, you know, I have to say a large part of that for me definitely comes down to my parents and my upbringing and that my father is a workhorse. You know, he rarely ever took time off to engage in social activities, but he certainly gave me that work ethic to show what success looks like. And if you put that effort in, the reward is something that comes out the other end. But You know, it's so interesting as I get older in life, though, that I find that I'm chasing challenges less. And I think, you know, I know we're going to talk about my book, but that is partly around that space in that I know for many of us who are women and we're trying to balance successful lives with our careers and our family and our relationships, that sometimes the success actually is when you realise you've done enough and that it's time to relax and settle back in and enjoy part of your life. And that's certainly something I've been working really hard on over the last couple of months and, and years, to be honest, is to to feel that I'm enough in the space and in what I've already done um, and stop always taking on those enormous challenges because, you know, yes, I do seem to attract them like magnets. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd love to dive into this throughout this conversation, that dichotomy of at what point is it okay to kind of take a breath and almost recognise and celebrate some of the things that you have done and where you're at at the moment and you've captured so much of that story in your amazing book uh, which has just been published and hit shelves called Enough. Was there a moment where you kind of realised, was there a sense of 
I want to say exhale (laughs) or acceptance. Was that prompted by something or was that kind of just happened over time? Look, I think it came down to a capacity thing and it's happened a few times in my life where I I find it very hard to say no to things, particularly if I see them as a great opportunity to, you know, learn something about yourself or promote something that you believe in. But last year was an incredibly large wake-up call when the twins arrived and I was just flailing in my pajamas like just like I don't know I don't know how I'm actually gonna survive this and you know my partner worked crazy hours and was never around and I just literally felt like I was just sitting there in vomit and poo and just <laughs> no idea how I was gonna get out the other end um, and it was at that point you just sit there and you go you know what I've got to take time it's time for the children it's time for me and it's okay to not be kicking goals anymore and I really enjoyed that space and that time to reflect on my previous career and reflect on what what we'd achieved as a family. And so, yeah, I think that was the start of that sort of introspection to realise that my greatest success is probably learning that you're enough with what you've already achieved. And I've lived five lives, so, you know, I need to be really proud of the things that my family and I have managed to do. Um, And that, I think, is one of my greatest success stories was actually to stop, take a breath and not feel guilty in that space for not kicking goals. Yeah that um, just to clean up the poo is okay for today. <laughs> just to, what was it that prompted you to um, want to capture some of that into the book to be able to share that message? A couple of things. I do a lot of public speaking, so a lot of, uh, a lot of the time I'm sharing these same messages on the stage and regularly I share a lot of vulnerable moments in my life. You know, I'm aware of what my resume looks like, Ali. It's it's long, it's prestigious, mm. I know that, and it's unattainable to many. Well, that's what it looks like. But in actual fact, I've failed so many more times than I've ever succeeded. It's just that I've had an, an ability to pick myself up when things haven't gone to plan. And it's such an easy thing for people to do if you can just shift your mind into that space that uh, that things are possible right when everything looks like it's just falling apart. The amount of times I got asked, oh, could you just summarise all that in a book? And so I thought, yes, okay. I'll do that. And I guess the key message that comes out of both the book and and the speaking gigs that I do is as a young person, I just never felt like I was good enough. You know, I I had that constant imposter syndrome, as many of us often talk about. And I often found that I was chasing some of these opportunities and and successes almost as an extrinsic way to feel better about who I was. And Mm -hmm. so learning that you don't need to be brilliant at things to be happy and successful was a huge learning curve in my life. And I guess I wish someone had said to me when I was 22 and I was already a world champion and, you know, tackling massive goals on a sports centre that there could have been ways I would have gone differently around the media. It could have been ways I did differently around relationships. And the majority of the time was because I was self-sabotaging a lot of the things I was doing and owning that and changing that platform has been the reason why I've been successful in, in other areas of my life. So I wanted to put all that down in a book. Um, I wanted to be really real about it. I talk about miscarriage. I talk about incontinence. I talk about failed relationships, divorce and the impact of that. You know, I talk about the fact that I should have won the Olympic gold medal because I was the best in the world on three occasions. Mm. But unfortunately for me, that wasn't part of my journey. And I know so many people whose lives, you you try everything to try and and succeed in your career or your pathway or for for some women, you know, to have a child. That could be their number one goal in life. And for some of us, it it just doesn't happen. And how we deal with that heartache and that disappointment uh, really shapes 
the next chapter of your life and allowing yourself to break in those moments, which so many of us don't allow. So I talk through all those vulnerabilities and in a really real, authentic way because I want women to learn from the mistakes that I made and not have to necessarily make them themselves. You do that really beautifully through the book. As you as you say, so much of your career, particularly your athletic career, um, has been very public and very much in yeah. the media. Uh, and so we'll know the headlines, but not necessarily some of the stories that have sat behind what you describe as failures, but really just kind of the so-called hurdles or the hiccups yeah. along the way. And even in reading the book, for, certainly from my perspective and for those listening, it was like chatting with a friend. Uh, <laughs> and it was this kind of sense of, wow, there is has been a lot of ups and downs and you really give um, insight to some of the struggles, the heartaches, the heartbreak, you know, miscarriage to let down to injuries, to to failures as well as amongst the successes. So, yeah, congratulations. You've done that <laughs> really beautifully. But it's, it's interesting because I use the word failure a lot. Um, I like the word mm. failure and it's so good because when I go and do these presentations, when I use the word, you can see the audience ripple with a bit of disappointment that I'm talking about my Olympic career as a failure. Is the exact point that I'm trying to prove is that it's just a word so how we interpret that word fail very much sets us up for for how we deliver from that point on I was at this great event recently and this was amazing woman she was in her 80s she was a doctor herself she was from India so she'd had obviously a very incredible career herself and she came up she goes I want to give you a new way to interpret fail I'm like okay that's great she goes spell the word f-a-i-l is first attempt in learning and I'm like love it and I have used it ever since because it's exactly what the way that I've been trying to communicate how I see failure as because ultimately it is just a time when we try really hard to do something and it doesn't happen it's quite simple I mean sometimes obviously there are things in life which are dire and will change your trajectory forever like a cancer diagnosis or something like that and I mean there's no failure in that that is pure heartache but the way we interpret that everything we do in life is a new learning and a new opportunity for us to review the things we do perhaps change the course we're on and most of the time it actually leads if you let it leads you to somewhere very special and I think that's the only difference between someone who's really resilient when things don't go well to someone who drags it like a ball and chain behind us is that we don't allow that failure to be an opportunity we just see it as a disappointment and we are haunted by it when you can do the complete opposite, you can pick up that failure and really examine it and really look at it and it becomes your weapon. It becomes your reason why you take on a new challenge because not winning the Olympics for me was heartbreaking. Multiple babies that I lost were heartbreaking. But, you know, now I work in women's health and I'm, I want to be an obstetrician. I'm applying for the specialty program right now and I know that that pathway and that chapter wouldn't have happened had have I gone on and been an Olympic champion because I wouldn't have had that desire and that need to find a career after after sport if I had have been as successful as, say, for example, Anna Mears or Sally Pearson. So, you know, there's always a reason to why things happen. Such a beautiful reframe because I think, you know, the fear of what if it doesn't work and, you know, we often hear the fear of failure can be the very thing that people kind of hold themselves back or put themselves right. out consciously or unconsciously uh, but to kind of reframe and see it as what can I learn from, what can I, and I love that description of almost how can I pick up this failure, this heartache, hold it in my hands and examine it. It's a hard thing to learn to do. (laughs) Sometimes experience shows us that we can be in the depths of heartache and heartbreak and realise that we're still here, the world still spins and we're okay. But there are definitely times, all of us, no matter what you're doing, fallen into that pit of failure and inner critic and beating ourselves up. What's your go-to 
response or strategies or tools yep, do you have absolutely. non-negotiables that you kind of work with <laughs> I love this space because first there's multiple things and I hope I can get through them all but the first one would be fail as often as you can because the more you sit with failure and you become uncomfortable in that space the more you learn ways that you personally cope and deal with that and I think that's one thing as an athlete we get very lucky because we lose races all the time you know you can't win every day and I always think about high jumpers whenever they do a high jump they always fail because eventually that bar falls off so put yourself in scenarios where even if it's not in your career or your pathway or something you'll just be at the gym you know, learn to fail at a weight in the gym because, again, it's just a simple thing, but the way you deal with that can reshape the way you, when larger heartaches come along that you're already ready to take on that challenge. The second thing is I did definitely grow up very typical Australian in that here's a cup of concrete, suck it up, princess, you know, toughen up. You, you need to, you know, not live with that pain and push it away. And I think particularly women, we're so we're so busy with our lives and our children and our family and trying to hold everything together that when something goes wrong, we might have a bit of an outcry about it, but then we shove it down and we push it away and we very rarely revisit it. Whereas I feel like sometimes the old drama Yana, which is my old nickname from many years ago, where I was very emotive and very quirky and would openly just cry if something wasn't going well. Don't get me wrong, I'm not as emotional as I used to be, but I let it out. So that outlet of mm. pain and disappointment was relieving in that sense whereas these days we try so hard to be tough when we just need to be soft and there's nothing wrong with our children seeing that mum or dad is disappointed or sad or hurt in that situation um, you know it might take a week it might take a month you know watch a lot of sad movies and let those tears out or if you're not a crier go to the gym and box a punching bag I love that sense of keep putting yourself in places where you might fail and almost like building up that muscle of having a crack at that yeah. weight in the gym that you don't know whether you can do it or not. Putting yourself in the way of key challenges. That's obviously been a, a theme for you personally across your career, particularly your athletics career. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, hey, what got you into oh. athletics <laughs> and what was that drive to kind of keep chasing what the next thing um, is? Well, sport, I've, I mean, I was a bit of a dork at school, um, you know, very nerdy and very bit of a teacher's pet kind of scenario because I've always loved academia. So I guess it was a bit of a shock. That sport was something I was good at. Uh, but, yeah, the, you know, the local athletics carnival at primary school uh, and I just won by miles. So it was just like, oh, okay, I can run. <laughs> and because my dad was such an avid sports person, he would take a day off work to come and watch me run. And so that was a real driver for me. I don't get me wrong, I loved to win and I enjoyed that I was good at something and seemed to fit in with a really nice bunch of girls down at the local little athletics uh, centre and that sort of, I guess, pivoted into a career pathway. But, yeah, initially it was definitely a, oh, wow, it wasn't a, it wasn't a conscious thought. I never wanted to be a sports person. Uh, I just very much enjoyed mm -hmm. the accolades I got from my family and, uh, and feeling really, uh, you know, sport is cool, whereas this dorky person yeah. that kind of, you know, was a bit of a, as I said, a bit quirky and a bit unusual and didn't make friends very easily, all of a sudden was popular because I was a sporty kid. So I, I, I liked that. Look, it's it's something that I acknowledge and I know is, I don't say it's a weakness anymore, but I know it's one of my character traits I need to always keep in check is that I'm someone who always wants to be liked. I know some people have really thick skin and it really doesn't bother them what people's opinions are. And don't get me wrong, that's a weapon in itself, but I'm incredibly sensitive and I've just always been someone who's wanted to have people around and, and been appreciated and liked. So one of the drivers I went into sport for was to have that friendship network and, and have mates. <laughs> and to be honest, it's a really key driver at that age yeah, and exactly. stage, right? In high school, finishing high school, that kind of sense of identity, exactly. who am I, where do That's I right. fit in? All of that kind of really ties together. 
Was there a particular moment where you realised that, hey, I might be good enough here to be on the world stage? Uh, it happened almost instantly, to be honest. So, uh, you know, I mean, I did little A's probably two or three years, but by the time I was 13, I was winning by 50 metres, which was unheard of. I, d- I don't even know really where that talent came from. I mean, I've got genetics in my family who were solid runners, my granddad and my own mother. But um, the realisation came when Jackie Burns, who was Melinda Gainsford-Taylor's coach, approached me when I was about 13 or 14 and said, would I come and train with Melinda Gainsford and be her, I guess, her co-pilot, her training partner for the Sydney Olympic Games. And, you know, she was one of my heroes in life. And so, like, the idea of going and running with this superstar sprinter was, yeah, was out of this world. So I uh, took a bit of convincing for my parents because it was a long way from home. Mum became my taxi driver for, you know, close on two or three years. We'd drive two hours a day to get to training. But the honour of running with someone of her calibre was was literally out of this world so I think that was the turning point because from that moment onwards I wanted to be Melinda Gainsford like you know I just wanted to do everything she did and I I remember going actually when you're talking about a moment I remember going to McDonald's with her which is the wrong thing to say we were doing but we were (laughs) (laughs) Um, and you know this group of little kids coming up to her and going Mel Mel can we have your autograph and looking at that and just going wow you know you can be a real role model and a real illustrious career in sport and I think that was the first time I realised that it wasn't just a sport it could be a career. Being able to take that career and represent Australia as part of that what was that moment like for you for your family? Well I mean I went to world juniors and things like that where I was I came back with a couple of gold medals and whatnot which was wonderful because you got to really feel like you know listen to the Australian anthem and and realise you were representing your country at the highest level and, and and of course the first time you put on the green and gold tracksuit is a I slept in it for a week so it clearly meant a lot to me at the time I, I loved representing our country but I'd say the Olympic Games my first Olympic Games I was only 16 when it started and walking out into that stadium and just feeling that crowd and the serious nature of sport of how this is a big deal you know this is not just this is not a little A's anymore this mm. is the the world stage um, and I and I loved that feeling I loved I remember walking out for the Sydney Olympics being obviously no chance of ever getting a medal or anything. Just it was I was purely a participant, but thinking, no, I want to I want to be on the dais. Like this is this is what I want to do. This is something that I want to dedicate my life to. It was pretty spectacular. The opportunity not only to kind of represent um, your country, but to continue to step into that real focus on this is a career, this is what I'm working towards, and um, there's the opportunity to really be on the dais. Part of pushing your body to the limit, to pushing it to that world stage, is that your body starts to break down or can break down from time to time. Talk to me a little bit about heartbreak, the navigating kind of injuries. You talk about um, Commonwealth Games but also the Olympic Games, particularly that one in the lead-up to 2004 Olympics, and the real devastation that you almost read in your book around what that was like. Talk me through not only that experience but then... What helped you to then almost feel like just start again? It was devastating. I mean, and it happened all the time to me. So I know that I'm one of the hardest trainers there is. I put my body on the line far too much when I come to sport because I always thought, and it's a really good message for your listeners as well, that the harder you try, the more you deserve something and therefore the more it's more likely it's going to happen. And to be honest mm. with you, that's not how life works. And you know, as a young person, it's hard to take that message, but it's actually about being smart with the way you apply yourself to things. And so I, you know, if I got given 10 reps, I'd do 11. When actually what you should be doing is the 10 that your coach told you to do. 11 is not going to necessarily be the answer. And for me, it was actually I overtrained 
thinking that more and more and more and more would be would be enough. And look, don't get me wrong, that mentality also took me to the greatest. You know, I was I was a multiple world champion, mm-hmm. and, and had of my world championships been one year later, I would have been double Olympic champion at this point. So it paid off. That work ethic and that tenacity paid off absolutely. Yeah. But sometimes you also need to listen to your body, and I wasn't very good at doing that. So. I would train through injuries when there were so many warning signs to back off, but I didn't, I just couldn't say no to to more and more training. So heartbreaking. You know, when you feel like you've done everything and you've gone beyond where you should have to then lose the championships that was absolutely yours to win, both the Athens and the Beijing Olympic Games. I was reigning world champion, undefeated for months going into those races. And so, you know, you couldn't get a good bet on me at the, at the TAB or, you know, sports bet or whatever because my odds were too in favour for, for winning. So to lose those events and publicly was heartbreaking, you know, really, really, truly heartbreaking. Picking yourself up is hard. But, you know, I always say to people, what have you got to lose? Did you survive that first heartache, that failure, that miscarriage or, you know, that loss of whatever it was? If you didn't get that promotion, did you wake up the next day and did life go on? Yeah, it did. Don't get me wrong, it hurt. A bit of your soul's left behind in that space and your heart aches every time you think about it. But the alternative of sitting or changing pathways and not giving it a crack again is where you'll have regrets 10 years later. So you have to exhaust every possibility you did. And I guess I've done that with everything. I've done that with with medicine. I've done it with children and I've done it (laughs) over the top with children. Um, And I've done it with my sports career so that that way I can Mm. sleep well at night thinking, well, I, I did everything humanly possible for that to work. It didn't happen. So there's nothing more you can do. And ultimately, and again, it's a, it comes back to that, are you comfortable sitting in those failures and in that disappointment? And the more you do it, the more you realise how resilient you are because that's where resilience comes from. It doesn't actually come from withstanding pain mm. or not living it. It actually comes from being brave enough to give it a crack, knowing that the odds are against you and thinking, well, the outcome is, this, what is the worst case scenario that's going to come out of this? You're going to look like an idiot. You might say the wrong thing. You know, You might go through another heartbreak. But can you live with that? potential tiny glimmer of what it could bring and usually that glimmer is worth Mm. it and so yeah so like you know I know we're talking about my sport but I think this resonates more even with the miscarriage I had four miscarriages and it was after my first child and I just remember thinking and I don't know if I'm ever going to be a mother or I'm ever going to have that have that opportunity and you think I know it's heartbreaking it's grossly unfair it's nature at its worst but give it a crack you've got only your heart to lose, if you push every boundary possible and you get to an age where you simply cannot continue further, then at least you know you've done everything humanly possible to try and find a way to make that goal happen. And then when it doesn't happen, you find other things that fill that void. Mm. It's always been something that I'm, I'm very passionate about is, is, is really giving your, your heart and soul to something before giving up. What's coming up for me, Yana, as I'm hearing you, is that heartbreak is par for the course of turning up for life and what it's got to offer and that that's not the thing to be afraid of. It's definitely the thing to be tender about but not to necessarily walk away from. One of the things is we can do the work around that but we are also exposed to the opinions of others and the voice of others. You've done that very publicly, but there are people obviously listening to this podcast who that could be family members, it could be friends, it could be related to miscarriage. So it's their own inner critic, but it's also I feel okay about this, but it's how do I navigate the fear of others, their opinion, and and that can come through wanting to protect you, but it actually... yeah, exactly. Help. Look, and that is an incredibly hard one and it's something it took me, oh, Ali, close on 30 years to work out because 
as you said, publicly. I, it wasn't just my family. It was everybody in Australia had an opinion mm. on what I said or what I did or how I dealt with things, you know, too many tears, too many dramas, too many opinions. You know, there was I was always being knocked for being different or saying too much or thinking differently from others. And it took a long, long time. And don't get me wrong, I think one of the things I did was I acknowledged that it's never going to change. I'm always going to be sensitive. I'm always going to be hurt by some of that kind of media. And it happened only a couple of days ago. I had some feedback from work that I was doing a bit too much media and, you know, that I need to be really careful with what I'm doing because I'm a very junior doctor and I need to make sure that nobody, you know, the people realise that I am very early in my career and I can't, I'm not a specialist so I've got to be careful in the space that I talk in. Great feedback. You know, hard to hear because I still thought, mm. oh, no, these people don't like me. That's not the case. It's not that they don't like you. They're caring for you. They're protecting you because they know that I'm a profiled person with a voice that can talk to medical things, but I need to stay in my lane. Fantastic feedback. We just don't always like hearing it. You know, yes, people's opinions are going to get under your skin. Allow it to get get upset about it in a little in your own little space. Allow you to really think about it. Why are you upset about that? Are you upset because the comments they're having are true and you actually need to listen to them? Or are those well-meaning comments directed like a transference from that person who's maybe a little bit jealous or a little bit sad or, you know, has a different opinion from you? And the cool thing is that it's all those different opinions that people have that shape who you are and shape out, you know, the iceberg theory of your, your personality on the surface and all the experiences beneath. And we need those conversations to make us think and make sure we're in the right space. So for some of us, we will never be happy and comfortable sharing our inner thoughts and our inner feelings with others. And that's okay. Acknowledge that. That's fine. That's you find another outlet. Maybe mm. it's a, a journal, a diary, going for a run, yelling it out to the mountains, whatever it is, have that conversation. For others who are like me, I'm someone who loves to discuss these with people. So I have one or two confidants in my life who I, mother, my mother is one of them, who when things like this happen, I sit down and I try and talk through it. Now, don't get me wrong. She'll say something I don't like, so I go to my other confidant and then see. And then if both of them agree, then I'm, exactly, good to have then I'm clearly wrong and I need to readjust my opinion on things. But that is, it's actually mm. a really powerful space to be in because two things. Firstly, when you, when you have that ability to share yourself with someone, you're going to have that feedback from them. But secondly, when you realise that external opinions actually do matter to you but you don't have to listen to them, you acknowledge and accept that that space is important and that it's okay to be sensitive and vulnerable um, and, and, to, in, and to what extent you need to protect yourself. And sometimes it's the perfect invitation to um, get clearer about True. the things that really matter to you when we, when we get a chance to, to do that. What are, we've talked a little bit about the word failure and certainly the way to kind of redefine that. One of these sentences that um, I pulled out from your book was when failure strikes, you can use the setback to fuel another dream. And certainly from a career perspective, this is something you did from athletics. Uh, and not only were you someone that went to the Summer Olympics, but you also yeah. went to the Winter <laughs> Olympics. Um, but you you talk about a particular scene in a coffee shop over a nice piece of banoffee <laughs> pie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That uh, that kind of sparks your then career shift into into medicine. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that shift, I guess, or just you know how those these failures can start that's to right. fuel what might have been another latent dream that's sitting. sitting yeah, that's there right. And I think the two things come out there. First thing is you need to know what you want to achieve. So when things are all falling apart and you've got heartache and your career's not going or, or something for you know is not the way you wished your life would be, 
it's actually the perfect time to sit down and look at what other things you might have wanted to achieve 5, 10, 20 years ago. And I'd always wanted to be a doctor as a kid. In fact, that's all I actually wanted to be. I never wanted to be a sports person, but um, I wanted to be a med- in, in medicine. So I was sitting there and I was listening to the person um, discussing that they were going to sit the medical entrance exam. So to get into medicine, you have to have good marks, obviously, at school or university and you need, there's an entrance exam and then an interview. And it just reminded me that this was coming up soon and, and my, my beautiful mother was also a very strong reminder of uh, the fact that that exam was approaching and kept encouraging me to do so and and reminding me that if I failed it, well, I'd failed at the Olympics anyway. So, you know, I've, I, I will, I'll, I'll live through that experience no matter what and you'll wake up the next day regardless. But what it did, Ali, was it gave me a, a reason to keep going and pushing myself in a direction of, of a positive mindset because, yeah, it hurt. I remember sitting there thinking, I've, mm. I've lost the Olympics. I'm too old now to go to another track and field games. I'm never going to be the best. All the 15 years of commitment is gone, but I'm just as passionate, just as hungry, just as angry to try and make amends for the things that didn't go well. So you've got a choice. You can sit with that disappointment or you can – apply it um and it was the worst time in my life to try and go to medical school i was a single parent i was divorced i had very little finances i was struggling to make ends meet uh, my, most of my sponsors had evaporated at that point and there i was sitting thinking i'm going to go and study one of the hardest degrees on the planet for five years of your life where you won't be able to earn any money because you're studying so hard really dumb but to think if i hadn't have taken that step so if i hadn't have lost the mm. olympics and therefore had the fire in your belly to try and do something else it probably wouldn't have happened. So, again, as you know, many mm. years later, I look back on that and I think, thank goodness I never won the Olympic Games because it pushed me, it gave me the drive and the desire to go and attack another goal and it worked perfectly because I remember the day I graduated from medical school, all the pain, all the disappointment of the Olympics, very much dampened. It's still there, don't get me wrong. I still wish I'd won the Olympic gold yeah. medal. My goodness, I put so much of my life into it. But I can see now that I have this incredible career where I get to work or hopefully work with women for the rest of my life in birthing babies and working with women with miscarriage and talking to women about fertility and you know hopefully when I graduate as a specialist I, I will be an obstetrician and help women go through what I've mm. been through in the past so like that's extraordinary and what a life life journey to be on when sport always you know you can't you cannot be an Olympic athlete when you're 50 like it's, it's not possible to me I think it's a blessing I look at it back and you just think you know that the biggest thing to take away disappointment is to fall in love with something else and succeed in that space and it just softens the blow of the previous Um, and it's very protective of your mental health if you can in your darkest moment find a light it's a way out of that getting clear on what you want to do not what other people (laughs) might suggest uh is really a big part of that and I love you know thank you for sharing it was almost like on paper this makes yeah, no. no sense at all but also I've got exactly. nothing to lose yeah what was it that pulled you or what's your interest in particularly in in women's health I know you've had your own kind of health scare with yep. cervical dysplasia what was your, what's your kind of interest in particularly that medical, um, that area? Well, I feel like it's I've been pulled in that direction completely because, one, so I did midwifery. I started midwifery as my undergraduate. I didn't finish it. I went into medicine. But, you know, I remember the first time I was pregnant. I just loved everything about pregnancy with my son, Cornelius. So I was quite young. I was only 22. And my beautiful midwife at the birth was just phenomenal. And I'm like, I want to be her. She's amazing. And then, yes, the cervical cancer scare, then the multiple miscarriages. And then I went through um, fertility treatment, IVF as a solo parent and actually had my children with a sperm donor. So going through that whole, what we call social infertility, because you haven't got a husband. It's a lovely tag. (laughs) 
stuff. Isn't Damn. that? I haven't heard no, that term what they before. write on the documents when you, <laughs> when you fill in the paperwork. But the point was, was again, breaking those taboos and being in that space where there are so many women in their late 30s who haven't met that husband that they, they've been dreaming of and that white picket fence story and pushing those boundaries to say that, you know, we're lucky. We have a womb. We have often most of us have eggs, not always, obviously, but there are ways and means to create that rainbow family. And then I went on and donated a couple of eggs to different families. So I went through that experience again and, and felt firsthand what it feels like for one of the ladies that I donated who'd been through multiple miscarriages and multiple rounds of IVF with no luck. So I saw I saw that experience. And then, the cervical, as I said, the cervical cancer dysplasia was really scary and I realised that I could be an advocate in that space and talk around cervical screening. And then I've had six children. So it's like I've, I feel like my experience is is more than average let's say <laughs> yes yeah 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 you it, it came to you so, yeah, and I just, you know even in the incontinence you know I, I'm sure you're aware of my SAS where I was incontinent on national television and we talked around that what that space is like you know I just I feel like it's a wonderful marriage between all my life experiences and my love of medicine yeah I, I really I truly hope that this is my career pathway and I, I will find out in a couple of months whether I've been successful in getting into the specialty program, which is very – I'm actually incredibly nervous, so for someone who's quite successful in life. But also it's that, you know, we, we're we having this conversation while you're yeah, sitting in the definitely. unknown. It's that, that everything we're talking about, you can do everything you right. possibly can, but also just hold – lightly this space that we may not yeah, be exactly. able to yeah. control and in, the in outcome. In my case, there's only, you only get three yeah. shots to the program. So um, this is my first go. So obviously I have two more tra- chances, but I, I have friends who have tried three times and not got on and they're incredible doctors. They're wonderful people. And for some reason that their fate, just like my Olympics, their fate didn't play and they have to find, they've, they've studied for 15 mm. years to become doctors and they've gone down that women's health pathway and they have to reevaluate their life and find a new why. And I really hope that I don't have to do that for this particular one. But you know, if it happens, it happens. You find a way, and you find a you'll find a, you'll find a new path. But I'm praying that doesn't happen yep. this time. Yeah, and just cross, <laughs> cross fingers. Yeah. <laughs> um, just quickly want to touch on your SAS experience, and that was pretty extraordinary to see publicly um, around Australia. You're the first fe- final female to make it through kind of the course. What did you take away from that Ooh, experience? Um, I'm tougher than I thought I was, which was fun to see. Uh, mentally, that is. I wasn't physically. My goodness, my body was falling apart at the seams. But it was just, well, one of it was really fun, to be honest. I am a bit of an adrenaline junkie, hence I did bobsled because I, I love the speed and the exhilaration of challenges and things like that. So I really enjoyed the actual physical side of that program. I loved how tough we had to be mentally. I loved the bonding of, of the, all the recruits, particularly the last couple of us who were there for the long haul um, and the lifelong friendships I've made out of that program, which is really beautiful. I also really enjoyed the opportunity to let Australia see who we were as people outside of our previous careers. I think it was it's a very real, raw program. Because of the intensity and how hard that program is, you can't hide who you are. Your personality comes through because it's just you're too tired to try and put any falsities on. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah and I think I think Channel Seven did a really good job of the way they portrayed most people. There's still some characters in there, like you know Dan Ewing. I don't know if you saw his site. He's a legend. Like he's one of my favourite people on the show, and he definitely got a bit mm. of a bad rap out of that program. And he's just such a great role model for the men because he's so he owns his own vulnerability. Like if you haven't watched the people who are listening, just give it a watch because he does talk about himself in the third person and things like that. He, he owns that. But I love how vulnerable and authentic he is and, and I think it's really lovely for men to see that emotive side of a male. Mm. So, you know, we're all on our own pathways and journeys but 
for me, I was very, very grateful that Channel 7 portrayed me the way they did because it's really opened me up to talk about, again, more women's health things and more personal stories that I really hope can help others um, in their own journeys. There are so many kind of life lessons that you touch on in your book. One of those is to seek out heroes uh, and to follow them. No doubt you had many throughout your career. Who are some of the people right now that you kind of see as uh, Well, I've just met a new one, funnily enough, and I'm flabbergasted and shocked and inspired that he's happy to be friends with me too. So I talk in my book about Catherine Hamlin, who is the fistula surgeon over in Africa, um, who graduated as a doctor in the 1940s and then took her young family over there and changed thousands and thousands of people's lives. And those, for those people listening, a fistula injury is when it's a birth trauma. So basically it means the birth is so long, um, the baby often dies and leaves her with horrific injuries between her bowel and her uterus. So she's often incontinent of urine and feces and she, you know, she can never have children. Again. It's horrible. Like These women are really outcast from society. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I recently met an incredible doctor called Andrew Browning who is over there doing five times what Catherine Hamlin did over there. And he's not as well known. Like, you know, he's not as famous as Catherine, but he absolutely should be. And what he's achieving over there is, oh, it's mind-boggling. And I would give my right arm when my kids are a little bit older to go and follow in his footsteps because I just see the difference he's making for these women. Um, And you realise your life is actually pretty benign when it comes to, you know, to tragedy and heartbreak when you see what some of these communities are going through over in Africa and I don't know, it just, it's really shook me up a little bit. I met with him for coffee only two weeks ago and some of his stories have really changed my and and making me really, really reevaluate my next decade of work. Fantastic. I think this, yeah, the the value of perspective, value of getting out of our own sphere and hearing some of the things that others are facing and what they're doing. And he's written a great book too, actually. He's written a great book that you can go and grab. Andrew Browning is his name. Okay, beautiful. We'll put it, yeah. I'll find that and make sure we put the links. Uh, your book, Enough, what is enough? How do you define that? How do you see that in talking? It's in interesting because <laughs> since I've written it, um, people have said I should have called it grit. They think that's more more my personality. <laughs> but um, it's about feeling that you are enough in the skin that you're in, you know, really sitting down and reevaluating your self-worth because, as I said at the beginning of this um, podcast, I so I had such a low opinion of myself for so long. I let the media and being bullied at school and all the all the things that happened around me really make me frame who I was and my and my value to to the world. When I was just doing the best that I can, you know, so many of us see others' opinions and other situations and our failures and our heartaches as a, a reflection on who we are as a person. When it's that's absolutely not true. We are all beautiful, vulnerable, perfect in the skin that we're in, and the greatest success you can have is to feel that you are enough in the world just the way you are. Um, And when you move into that space and you start really appreciating who you are as a person, you open so many doors because your mindset shifts into a space where things are possible and, you know, opportunities are doable and challenges are overcomable, you know. So it's the whole, your whole space changes. Um, And so that's why I wrote the book is that I'm hoping that it can make people really sit there and go, my weaknesses are my strengths, the things I've done wrong are my lessons um, and I feel good enough that I deserve to be successful and it's a great space to move towards. Yeah, and no, I've loved this conversation you talked about. You've kind of lived five lives. I feel like there's probably five or six different <laughs> episodes we could we could go down and pass some conversation. No, so thank you so much for your time. One final question. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? For me, it means to own who you are, to share it with others and to lead by example. 
<laughs> I'd sign up for that. Thank you so much, Yana. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then let's keep the conversation going. The main place that I hang out is on Instagram at Ali Hill, A-L-I-H-I-L-L. One of the ways you can continue to support me and the team behind the podcast is if you could take two minutes just to rate and review Stand Out Life Podcast on whatever platform you are listening to. You can also subscribe to the podcast so you'll be notified when new episodes come out. And if this conversation is one that you know that someone in your world would get huge amount of value out of, then please share it with them or maybe share it on your socials. Once again, thanks so much for tuning in, for your ongoing support and for joining me in exploring what does it really take. As always, this is Standout Life Podcast and I'm Ali Hill.